Well, thank you guys for, uh, for uh, letting us take that time. We are in the middle of a series uh, here talking about Christmas. It's Christmas time, and uh, we're dealing with forgotten Christmas classics. Now, we've talked about the original Santa Claus in our first week. We looked at our three amigos, the three wise men last week. And this week, we're going to dive into a different angle. We're going to examine the Grinch, who, who nearly stopped Christmas. Now, who is this guy? Well, we'll dive into that in a second. But it's kind of interesting to look at the character of Herod and who he is. Um, and what he brought into the Christmas story. But um, it's interesting that he's not really found in your average Christmas story out there. Then when you, when you hear about the retelling and you tell your kids and children's ministry stuff, the Christmas story, Herod's conveniently forgotten. And I think I kind of know why. I can remember, actually this happens kind of often actually now. Um, I'm a talk radio guy. I like talk, any talk radio people in here, you enjoy a, a good talk radio host once in a while to yell at them or whatever you want to do. And um, while driving in the car, we're as a family, my wife and I are like, that's one of our primary ways of getting news sometimes or just like what what's going on and we'll turn it on I can remember this one time I, I turn it on and it's starting to talk and suddenly I hear this noise it's like horrific like something awful has just um, happened like someone heard about a horrible evil death but a screaming is coming out of the back of my car and it's from my daughter she's got her hands against her ears and pushing as hard as she can her face is red like she's trying to squish herself and I'm like what's going on is she possessed she's saying don't turn that on I don't want to hear the bad stuff just don't let me hear the bad stuff anybody be there with her like that anybody else okay chickens. Anyway, the, uh, no, just kidding. The, but what she was just doing, the reality was she didn't want to hear it. Just don't let me hear what's going on. I don't want, it, it frightens her. And so, of course, we, we, you know, we pan it to the front or we try to keep it away from her so she's not freaking out or whatever's going on. But uh, she has a sensitive heart about that stuff. Some of you do. And I think uh, Christians in general throughout history seem to have had kind of a sensitive heart about evil. As we have erased this evil portion of the story in Christmas and made it go away. You see, I mean, think about it. What's the worst thing that happens in the Christmas story when we tell our children the story? You know, Mary and Joseph have this big, long journey. But that's okay. Mary gets to ride the donkey. No, the worst thing that happens is they get into Bethlehem. And they have to have this conversation with this mean old innkeeper who won't, let, won't kick somebody out of a room so they can have a pregnant lady can have a place to sleep at night. No. And, I mean, I've heard Christmas stories and pageants where the innkeeper's got, like, you know, lines. And suddenly the innkeeper's got a wife who shows up and starts arguing with him that you need to let the people in the house. I'm not going to do that. I don't have any room. You know, all this fiction that we've created around the one plot point that Jesus didn't, didn't get a room at the end. And that's not the plot point in actually the scriptures at all. The plot point and the dangers in the scripture are far greater and far darker. It's no wonder we've removed them because we as humans, we would rather cover our ears and go, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to know about the evil. Just don't tell me. That's pretty, pretty interesting because humanity struggles with evil. If you look at um, other religions, for example, let's, let's look at the Hindus and the Buddhists. They have a viewpoint of evil being combined with good, that you can't have good without evil and you can't have evil without good, that these two things coexist. They're, they're yin and yang. They're co-mingled. They are the, actually the same exact thing. And so they just need to be let to exist and let to, to just remain in the world. And they're, they're not something you overcome. They're not something you do anything about. It's just the way it is. That's also the answer of a lot of atheists. And I, and I don't I don't know if you're an atheist, I don't know, but you may be here, but you, most atheists I know believe in survival of the fittest. And the viewpoint of the survival of the fittest, while they want to yell at us, we have a problem with evil, they have a problem with evil and good because ultimately survival of the fittest says there is no evil, it's just who's the strongest wins. 
There is no evil in this world. Just if I can beat you, I win, I'm stronger, my genes are going to go forward, not yours, and that's better for the gene population because I'm the stronger, more fit individual. There's nothing, no rules and boundaries governing nature that are dealing with ethics. And yet that's exactly what our culture, as its predominant viewpoint, is trying to say. They're trying to say, oh, look, you Christians, you have this God, and you got this issue with evil. But they're all just going like, but evil's normal. It's supposed to be what it is. It's just kind of how life works. But how do we then deal with evil? And what's amazing is that if we didn't erase Herod, if we didn't yank him out of the Christmas story, we have a ready-made entry point to talk about evil with our children and the God of the Bible and what he's doing. And so let's look at this person of Herod. Let's examine this Grinch who nearly stopped Christmas. You will. You can grab your Bible. We're going to Matthew chapter 2 again. And we're going to examine the same verses we looked at last week. But we're going to, we're going to dive into this guy named Herod. So go ahead and grab this. We're just going to kind of yank out the thoughts as we begin to move through these together. If you don't have a Bible, you're going to want to grab one from the seats under, under the chairs there. And you'll find page 807 is Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to begin in this way. So it starts off as we read last week. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east. Um, came, they came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Let's just stop there for a second. I think this is a very important key point. It's implying something that's going on. You see, you and I, we read this, and it's like the old Christmas story. We're like, yeah, da, 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 look, we focus in on the, on the wonderful magi, and we're thinking about all those things we learned last week about these crazy pagan astrologers who are marching into the palace of the king of the Jews, and many of us have no clue who this Herod guy is. And yet, underneath, anybody reading this from the first century would have gone, oh, that's trouble. See, Herod wasn't supposed to be king. He's not even Jewish. He's not of the line of David to be a king of the Jew. In fact, what he is, he's Idumean, which means he's at least maybe half or one quarter Jewish, which is not okay with the Jewish people. They're very much opposed to having a king over them that is not fully 100% Jewish. And so here's this man who's become king of the Jews. He became king of the Jews because his father was able to weasel his way into this man named, uh, Ar or I think he was, his name was Archelaus, but his father Archelaus winded his way into a man named Hyrcanus. Now Hyrcanus, ignore the big names, you don't get it. Just think of the H-dude. H-dude was king and high priest at the time. And Hyrcanus was kind of this weak, sick guy. His brother was trying to take over the throne from him. And Herod's dad marches in, sidles up next to this guy Hyrcanus and says, hey, I'll give you a hand. Hyrcanus goes, yes, thank you. You got some power. This will be great. And so this Archelaus, Herod's father, helps move his brother out of the way and, and actually ultimately puts Hyrcanus in power. In the meantime, Rome notices that uh, you know, Herod's dad's doing a pretty good job, tells him, hey, why don't, you, uh, why don't you let your sons take over some territory? So Herod, in our story here, winds up becoming a ruler over a, north, a couple northern territories and does such an amazingly great job. He starts um, kind of hanging out with this guy that we know as Pompey. Some of you know him as Pompey. Or Pompey was, the, was the, one of the big-time rulers of Rome and winds up taking portions of the kingdom over. 
and is ultimately taken over by a man named Octavian. He's known as Octavius Caesar. And so you don't need to know all this. I'm not going to give you a test. You know, you're thinking history, this is so hard. Just ignore it. It's just a story. And what happens is Octavius takes over Pompey and now Herod finds himself in a situation. He's been fighting off Cleopatra for his territory. He knew these people for real. And yet we don't know who Herod is in the story, but he knows Cleopatra. He knows Pompey. He knows Caesar. And in all of this, he winds up being declared king of the Jews twice. And both times he impresses massive rulers like Caesar, the ruler over all of Rome, and winds up being their favorite dude out there in the east. Because he keeps rule and peace over all of the areas so the Parthians stay away. And so Herod himself isn't only a king of the Jews because Rome wants him to be, and the Israelites hate it. The Jewish people can't stand this guy. He's building all kinds of pagan worship centers. He set up an entire place to worship Caesar up north called Caesarea Maritima. And he turned, but at the same time, he brings all this job and wealth because he builds this port up north. One of the, one of the amazing wonders of the ancient world, he actually literally digs down moorings and builds an undersea kind of establishment and builds a port where there's no port. Herod was a genius builder and he built more than anybody other than one other Caesar in in the ancient histories. And this guy just loved to build like crazy. He winds up actually doing his greatest deed, which is he builds the temple of Herod, we know it today. And it's, um, it was the Jewish temple. He remodels it, inlays it with gold and puts all this stuff on it. It takes 60 some odd years to build it. This is the very temple that Jesus would show up in and clean out the courts. And he would, this would be the temple that he would have grown up worshiping at to sa- make sacrifices was Herod's temple. And Herod is known for this beautiful temple and the beautification of this place, but he's hated for who he is. Why would all of Rome, why would all of Jerusalem shudder then if if suddenly these magi show up? Except that Herod had a problem. He didn't want to let go of his kingdom. In fact, in this stage of his life, he is probably extremely sick. It's very likely he would die within several months or or less than a year from this very scene that we see him in. You can imagine he's aged, he's coughing, he's hurting, he's there and he's saying, who is this guy, this king of the Jews? I I want this guy eliminated. And this is how far he was willing to go. Early on in his career, he killed his mother-in-law and his wife and her son because they all wanted to take the kingdom back. He turned around and later, in just a few probably months or a couple years before this, he had his favorite sons arrested, thrown in jail, and executed. His favorite sons, better to be his pig, they said, than be his sons, because you're more likely to survive as his pig. And the reality is that Herod was a psycho. At this point, he's just had his next oldest son arrested and sent in jail, and five days before he would die, he would have him killed and install another set of his sons. He had tons of sons because he had tons of wives, but the guy is just, he, he is power hungry. And so in come these random pagan magicians to say, hey, we heard that there's a one being born king of the Jews. And he's going, say what? And all of Jerusalem went, ah. they all back down. They're all freaked out. What's going to happen? This is the tension under the text. This isn't pretty. Jesus doesn't show up in this, we're all hoping for a Messiah. No, he's showing up in a world where the powers that be don't want a king, the true king of the Jews showing up. And they'll do anything they can to stop this thing that we know as Christmas. And so 
When Herod the king heard this, verse 3 says, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who, is, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He's starting his plot. He's going to figure out where this guy is, and he's going to execute him to make sure that he... This this kid, this baby, does not rise up to rule his kingdom. And after listening to the king, they were on. They went on their way. Oh, actually, he says, "Go and search diligently for the child. When you found him, bring me word that I too may come and quote unquote worship him." Yeah, right, liar. All right. He moves forward. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and then the magi come. They find the baby born. They give the gifts. They worship and they celebrate. And then it says, "And being warned in a dream, verse twelve." Not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country another way. So now, our first introduction to Herod is not a nice one. This guy is crazy, ready to kill and do anything he can to stop somebody from becoming king of the Jews. So why in the world is this guy in the story? Why isn't it just, hey, the worst case scenario is you can't find room at the end? What do we need this crazy, power-hungry king hovering around for, God? Why don't you just not have that guy around and let him die, you know, as he will in a few months, and and just give yourself a favor and not put your son through all this stuff that he's going to go through? And it begins because Herod plays an important part in the life of Jesus, actually. And he plays an important part for many of us. In fact, God worked out good by using this evil person, Herod, to reveal the Christ, In the Old Testament, there are multiple prophecies, about 48 of them specifically referencing the Christ, and uh, several hundred in total if you really kind of pull them all together. What's interesting is a lot of people will use this. They'll say, look, these prophecies are fulfilled by Jesus. And if you'll just look at these, you'll realize it's like a fingerprint that identifies who the Messiah is and who they're waiting for. There's a specific time period when he was supposed to show up according to Daniel. And we know in history that the Jews understood this and were waiting expectantly for that Messiah at this time. The second one is they knew that there was supposed to, he was supposed to be born in Bethlehem as we see. Well, here's what's interesting. A lot of people have claimed, well, the prophecies by Jesus could easily be fulfilled. It's no big deal. I mean, he just makes himself fulfill the prophecies. He says he's supposed to have zeal for the house of God, so he cleans it up. He says he was supposed to teach these things, he's supposed to, and he does that. But it's a different thing when he fulfills prophecy he has no control over. Like his birthplace. I mean, how many of you guys chose your birthplace? I mean, come on, let's be honest. My kids had a weird thing happen to them. Three of them were born in exactly the same room at, at, at Corona's hospital. Now, there's no prophecy associated with that, and that's random, but they didn't get to pick their birthplace. And Jesus here is born in exactly the right place, and that would have gone on, and we would have known about it as Christians, but it would have never risen up to the level where the chief priests would have known, the rulers, the true rulers of the land. And what Herod did is he opened the eyes of those who should have been looking and should have known that Jesus was coming. And God used it to say, hey guys, my Messiah is here. These magi who show up, that's strange enough. But that they were fulfilling prophecy here and Herod's the one who pulls all this stuff together is really important. I need you to listen up. But they didn't. They moved on. And so Herod kind of moved on too. So 
next thing we know, these wise men are running away for their lives, likely trying to stay away from Herod's uh, armies and those who would notice. And it goes on in verse 13. Now, when those wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, with, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, maybe a couple nights later or something like that, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem all, in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he ascertained from the wise men. Now we see why we wiped Herod out, right? I mean, who puts this in the children's story? Oh, and Jesus ran off to Egypt because Herod wanted to kill them. By the way, he killed everybody two and under too. You know, it's like we don't say that in the children's ministry. It just causes kids to cry. It's not fun. And so, but Matthew is telling the truth here. He lays it in here and he says, that, and, he, and he applies this verse, verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Herod is, is horribly evil. I mean, in his murderous rage, wipes out probably 10 to 15 little boys, two or younger. Just goes and finds our nursery and decides he's going to kill those kids because he wants to be king. And this guy, however, in his actions was doing something, doing something powerful. Right now, you and I get to sit here. We're comfortable. It's nice. Cozy chairs. You go home later. You relax. You have some nice food. You can pick out where you want to go, the restaurant you want to go to. Or you have this opportunity. Maybe just go home and watch some football games and cheer your teams on and get pumped up. And hey, this is going to be exciting because you live in America and you live in comfort. Maybe you even got yourself, like I did, a nice big fat TV for Christmas. So you got to be more to watch of those football players. Look, I can see the sweat, you know, all that fun stuff. The reality is, guys, that's not what Jesus identifies with, is it? I mean, the Jesus in this text is not sitting around enjoying the comforts. Yes, they just had a home. It says he was in a home when they found him. He's not uh, probably in that barn somewhere, as we assumed he is, but he's in this home. And he's probably comfortable now. You know, she's not putting him in the manger every night. She's got the right clothing and the right places to sleep. Comfort has come to the family. And yet, what are they going to do? The angel says, get up, get out of here, go to Egypt. And why Egypt? Well, first of all, because Herod had no power in Egypt. He, in fact, him and the rulers that be don't want him and Egypt dealing with each other. So it was a safe zone. But they don't have family in Egypt. They don't have a house to go to in Egypt. They got to leave what they just have and go take off. Maybe they'd set roots. Maybe had a job up, gone in the middle of the night, running to Egypt. Not the safest road on the world either. You need to deal with murderous thieves and all kinds of stuff on that journey. And yet they do it. They get up, they leave. And what it makes us realize is that Jesus doesn't relate to me when I'm at home hanging out, playing video games and watching my kids relax and enjoying a beautiful Christmas tree and just enjoying the comforts of life. Because Jesus was a refugee. Think about it. 
He had to escape a murderous, rampaging king, a ruler who wanted his life. And he became, and his family became refugees as they ran off down into Egypt. Now, it's interesting because Matthew notes this, and he gives us a couple weird things. Look at verse um, 15 here. He says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Then later he actually uh, says the same thing in verse 17. This was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And he says this voice of Phil and Ramal and that stuff. What's odd here is that neither of these are considered messianic prophecies. Like no, nowhere in the Old Testament they're going, yep, that, that's talking about uh, the Messiah. No, nobody would have said that because when it's saying, and I called my son out of Egypt, it's literally saying I called Israel out of Egypt. And he's saying that this is Israel that we're referencing, not anything else. But Herod has done an action here. He's, he's actually identified Jesus with Israel as a refugee. You see, Israel was refugees. That was who they were. When you think about Israel's life, they first march into Egypt and they find themselves with no power. They find themselves being crushed by a king. God supernaturally grants them access out. They leave and what do they do? They wander. As refugee status throughout the wilderness, not being received well by some countries, received by others. Finally, they come into their promised land. They take it over. It takes quite a few hundred years. So they're still kind of in and out of cities as they go, living in tents and, and living like Bedouins, roaming around. Finally, they have it. They have it for a few hundred years until God says, you guys have been totally disobedient. And he sends them Assyria and Babylon and pushes them back out to live as refugees, wanderers. Jesus here is identifying with Israel. There's a powerful prophecy in the book of, that is actually aimed at the Messiah in the book of Isaiah 53. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted as if he had done something wrong. And here we understand this to mean that he was smitten with our sins and he was grieved, but the hour is interesting. See, the reference in the book of Isaiah to our griefs and our sorrows is not mine and yours, it's Israel's. That Jesus identifies, he bore, bears Israel's griefs, he bears Israel's sorrows. And in that, Matthew notices something. Just as Egypt had, or just as Israel had gone into Egypt and came out against a murderous king, so Jesus is going into Israel and come, or going into Egypt and coming out with a murderous king on his back. See, Jesus identifies with Israel in a way only a king can. He bore their sufferings. He bore their pains. He was a refugee like they were. And he wandered about like Israel did. Now guys, this directly applies to the refugee situation in our world. You see, Jesus would identify with these poor men and women who are finding themselves sitting in camps, whether it's in South Sudan, where there's refugees, whether it's in the middle of Africa, where there's tons of refugees trying to seek homes, whether it's come from Syria, wherever you find it, refugees are all over the place living in squatter settlements, being dished out a cup of food and a little bit here and a little bit there without a home, without a safe place to live. And Jesus identifies with those people. In fact, the gospel enters into those places in powerful ways. And maybe it's our calling as Christians to not just be a, an answer to some of the refugee crisis because we can identify with them because our Lord was a refugee. But at the same time, having an opportunity, perhaps, perhaps just pray for them. To pray they could find a home. To pray that they could enter into a place where they were no longer wanderers. Jesus never stopped being a wanderer. In fact, later, when people said, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. Jesus said, then foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
It was like that when he was a child. It's like that when he was an adult. Can I just tell you the church used to know this and we forgot it? In the comforts of America and the prosperity that we've owned, many of us have forgot we used to sing, this is not my home. I'm simply passing through. And that we've actually been known as the wanderers on the earth. That this is not the place we set down our roots. We have not entered into our country upon which we are citizens. For we are citizens of a far greater country called heaven. But what we have done in the comforts and the joys of this life and Christmas can fool us. I'm not saying it's bad to be comfortable. I'm not saying it's bad to enjoy a home. It's bad when it fools you to think that this is all there is and we begin to fear loss. And we begin to fear that we're going to not have it anymore. And we forget that Jesus never had it. He lived in poverty and wandered about and yet God took care of him and God prospered him and blessed him in the spiritual ways. My friends, you and I cannot be fooled by the comforts of this world. Do not be amazed by the great tools and technologies and the comfortable chairs. I'll take them. I will put some hard wooden pews in here and see how other people did it. No, we won't do that. But the reality is that when we identify with Christ as a refugee, we identify with the fact that you and I are not established here. This is not our home. We are passing through. And as you come closer and closer to that greater country, it should give you a greater thrill because that is where we are going. It is where things will be right. It is when things will be perfect. And so Herod's actions help us remember this, help us show this, because without Herod, there's no Jesus running off as a refugee identifying with Israel. Nope, we just have a Jesus comfortable in a home. That's not what we were called to identify with. In fact, it goes on in the next part of the verses to identify what Herod's death does. And it turns out to name Jesus a Nazarene. Or, and so let's look at this. It goes on. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning, who was just as psycho as his father, um, psycho too, actually. So this is the repeat. He was reigning over Judea in the place of his father, Herod. He was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Here's the problem. That verse is nowhere in the scriptures. He will be called a Nazarene is not found in the Old Testament. It's kind of just sitting out there. What prophets said this? Because he uses the plural. Prophets said this. And upon an examination of this, what you begin to discover is that this is a theme that's throughout the scriptures. And I'll tie this together. See, Jesus had to move to a town called Nazareth. What's strange about this little town called Nazareth that he had to move to because he was being attacked by Herod and his family is that it was the final resting place of a group of men who still lived and still knew their identity, namely the sons of David. You see, another, king group, another group of kings called the Hasmoneans had risen up in a rebellion against Greece. And, and, we sell, and they, they celebrate Hanukkah for that, for that. The festival lights comes out of that rebellion. And so here, this man named Judas the Hammer, Judas Maccabeus, I love that, the hammer. You know, he's this guy who starts off this new kingdom called the Maccabees. And the Hasmoneans rise up, but the people who knew they were of the, of the lineage of David had to kind of back away and hide. And they moved to a small town to start a village called Nazareth. Now the name Nazareth is interesting because it's born from a verse in the, in the prophecies of Isaiah, namely the same one we just looked at. 
a couple verses earlier, it says, for he grew up before him like a young plant. That word right there, young plant, a shoot, like a root out of dry ground. Those terms, the term is nasser in the Hebrew. And the nasser was the root, the stem, the branching out, this new growth that comes out. And what they were saying is, we are the people of the Nasser. We are the new branch, the new root of David that comes from Jesse. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him, which is interesting that that's attached to it because people who lived in Nazareth, they would say, oh, what are those guys worth? They're the country bumpkins kind of reality. They didn't give him any prestige to come from Nazareth. And so what Matthew does, he sees this verse, he understands the other passages about the shoot of Jesse, this branch that would be birthed forth. And he says, look, This fact that he moved into Nazareth, he became a Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth proves what the prophet said about him. He is the branch that will shoot out of the dry ground. What does this mean for us? That you don't have to be insulted when somebody calls Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. Because what the, uh, what the apostles were saying when they used the term Jesus of Nazareth was not just identifying that he comes from the town of Nazareth, but they're saying he is the one, he is the shoot, he is the promise that came out of the dry ground. David's lineage was as good as dead. That promise looked impossible. And yet here, out of this dry ground, God's promise breaks forth. You too might be going through just a dry process. Once you believed God had something for you, you believed that there was a great thing and and age has stolen that from you. That the promise of the root branching from the ground still exists because there's a resurrection coming in which in eternity, if you've trusted Christ, he can resurrect some of those things that you've had to let go. Some of you may have been working years and it's now in a dry area, but God has given you this promise that he's been working in you. Don't lose trust that God may be doing something. It took hundreds of years for this shoot to show up. And God is faithful to his promises every single time. And we need to be reminded of that. So Herod brings us a lot. Herod brings us all kinds of stuff. Out of all of these evils that Herod does, God is working good underneath it of identifying Christ. You say, well, that's nice. Two-year-old children were killed by this guy. Anybody struggle with that passage? I mean, honestly, let's be okay. Imagine these little kids, the kids playing around in the nursery over here in the preschool, having fun, and in comes these soldiers, and they kill them. Because Herod wants to end Jesus' life. I mean, what is God doing with that? Why is God, how can God work out of evil, Herod's evil, a greater good here? What, what is going on? Many of us are probably struggling more with the question, why wouldn't God just stop it in the first place? Why not just hold back evil? Why not just say no? Well, first of all, I just want to point out, one of the reasons God doesn't do this, because he knows a lot more than us. So what what does that matter? Well, let me put it this way. He knows a lot more than us in this way. How many evils has he stopped? Would we even know? It's not like he published that in a book. There are many times that I know in my life he stopped me from doing evil. I'm about to act in sin or do something or say something dumb and something distracts you, right? And you're like, what, what? And you don't go back to it. You don't enter into that sin. God has given a gracious out. There are many evils that God stops, but he's not gonna, he's not gonna stop them all. That would be to take away our freedom of choice. Well, why does he just stop the big ones? Like this one, this is a horrible one. Why not stop San Bernardino? Why not stop these things? Well, if he's chosen to stop some and not others, he must have reasons He must be doing something. He's not just going, well, I couldn't handle that one. Whoops. 
Because he's stopped great evils. He has. And he's allowed other great evils because he knows what he's doing. And he will judge every evil. What, what happens here, and we'll flesh this out as we go, is, Jer, is that Matthew, seeing this, actually quotes a scripture from the Old Testament here. It, it's from the book of Jeremiah. It's a special book, a special chapter called chapter 31. And it starts off in this manner of this lament. Jeremiah constantly is crying. He's called the weeping prophet. He's a whiner. No, it's just because he's actually, nobody listens to him. And so it's just frustrating for him. And so he's like, oh, the Lord, the voice in the Ramah, the lamentation of bitter weeping. What had happened is Israel had been gathered at Ramah as they were about to exile them into Babylon and all these children were killed. And so it's talking about that instance and people weeping over this. And Matthew grabs this and says, it's the same thing. Boom. And you're like, how is it the same thing? Because the, Jeremiah uses this instance to begin to talk about what God has done. And then he moves into verse 31, one of the most powerful sections of scripture that shapes the New Testament. It's called the New Covenant. And it reads, behold... Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Notice the link even in Matthew's language. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And it goes on to, I will put, in my, put my law within them and I will write it in their own, on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Notice this language. I'll put my law in them. This is the same thing Paul says about the Spirit of God, who will dwell in you, and his law will be no longer an external thing. It's an internal thing. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is called adoption. You become sons of God when you're adopted by God, and you receive Jesus Christ. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Why? For I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. He will have dealt with it so we have access to God to know him. This is the gospel. Locked right there in the Old Testament. Bent around one thing that's missing. Every covenant came with a sacrifice. Every time God did something where he made a promise to people, he made it with the, the shedding of blood. Now, these children are not that shedding of blood, but it was hinting at something. Where he starts with the weeping and wailing over the loss of their children, God would eventually give his own son up on the cross as that which enacted this covenant in which you can know God and be assured of that. And what he sees here is the link of a national tragedy to the proclamation of a covenant of these death of these children because this covenant bearer was here and the image of what it will mean when he dies on the cross as the one who gives a sacrifice. God does not look upon the loss without knowledge. He understands the pain. He knows that because he himself has seen his son die upon a cross. God is working out from the evils he allows great goods. You know how I, I mean, let me give you an analogy. If you're still struggling with this, the best analogy I can give you is chemotherapy. Anybody have seen somebody go through chemotherapy? It's horrible. If you didn't know that person had cancer, you'd be like, why are you killing that person? You take them to the brink of death on purpose. You put them through pain. Their hair falls out. They get thin. They get emaciated. They look like they're just dying because they are. You're killing off their cells. 
It's horrible. It's evil. If we didn't know what the point was. Because the point is for them to come to the end and be able to declare, you're cancer free. Maybe it's time to start thinking about the evils that occur in our world. The evils that Herod and evil leaders and ISIS and bad bosses and all this junk. To realize that God is indeed still working good underneath. And these evils are his chemotherapy for this world so that he might produce a greater good. That he might undo all of this evil and reveal it to us and shift and change and bring many to know his name and be saved. That maybe God is actually working something out here in all of this. Because we know he's going to deal with all the, all the evil. It'll be dealt with in Jesus. The, one of the great prophecies at the beginning of Isaiah, we sing at Christmas time, is for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government or his rule, and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David, over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. When Jesus comes to sit in his rule and rule on his throne, justice will be established. Every evil that has ever been committed, mine and yours included, will be judged. That guy who got away and breaking into your house and stealing your stuff has already been caught. He's just waiting for sentence. That guy who got away from raping you or your daughter or your friend, that molester, that evil human being who's come into your life and made you a refugee because he gained power, they've already been judged. It's just waiting the day of sentencing. There is no evil on this planet that will have been gotten away with, period. God's not overwhelmed by our evil. He's not dealt with this boy who comes, came, to be this king. And he will establish it. We don't have to plug our ears and scream. I don't want to hear it. You can be assured that he's dealing with it. Because the chemotherapy that he's working out. As he introduced the agent named Jesus Christ. Is working to the good. And that good will ultimately lead to a declaration of no cancer. No, it will lead to this declaration. It will say a loud voice. from This is from the book of Revelation. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Where'd that come from? This is the new covenant. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall no, be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, Write down this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. My friends, there will be a declaration over all of the universe, and it will be, this place is sin-free. This place is pain-free. This place is death-free. And it's because of the work of this boy, Jesus, this man who would die upon the cross, the gift given to us through his son, why does God not stop every evil? Because the greatest evil that's ever been committed was the death of his son on the cross. Humanity rose up against their God and crucified their God who created them. You think it's bad for a child to rise up and kill their, their good parents? We rose up and killed our God who gave us everything. And in that one act, God was able to do something amazing that's only been defined by a young man named Joseph, actually an older man at that point, not the father of Jesus, different Joseph from the Old Testament, who went through a horrendous life himself. 
betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, arrested for something he didn't do, thrown into a pit and in jail, finds himself before Pharaoh only to be released and made number two in the land. The end of his life, his brothers have come to him and they know it's him and he has all the power to destroy them and they beg him, please don't kill us. And he says this, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be saved, kept alive as they are today. And one day we will stand before our brother who we betrayed, namely Jesus Christ, and put him on a cross and he will look at us and he say, you meant it for evil. But God, the greatest judo artist in the world, see judo doesn't actually use any power of its own. It takes the power of the attacker and flips it on them. He took the power of our evil, raging torrent towards him and he flipped it. And turned it to the greatest good that's ever known. The salvation of every human sinner freely given through the work of Jesus Christ. It's no wonder that he foreordained it. In the book of Acts it says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed. Human evil actions but God's good perfect plan. Herod's evil human actions God intended to use as a good, perfect plan. Guys, we don't have to fear evil. We don't have to plug our ears and say, la, 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 I don't want to hear it. We don't have to pretend that good and evil must coexist and we must balance the force, you know, love Star Wars, but it's not true. We don't have to believe it's survival of the fittest. No, we just simply realize that we've got a God who's dealt perfectly with evil. Who want, I mean, this is the God people want. The God who can stop evil, the evil he does allow, he does it because he's bringing about a great good. He's allowing the chemotherapy in this reality to come about to bring the greatest good and that he can judge everything in the end. And so all evil is dealt with 100% perfectly. Nothing gets away. No strand is loose. All tied together. This is the God we get to worship at Christmas. And why Herod the Grinch should not have been erased. It gives us the perfect entry to explain how great our God is. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? I hope that we as a church would learn to continue to trust our God even greater, even when fear and evil seems to rule us. But maybe you don't have that trust. Maybe you have wrestled with this question about evil and it's time for you to, to come to a place where you trust that great God. See, all the sins that you've committed, all the junk that you've done in your life, yes, one day we'll reach a boiling point in which God will have to judge it. But he's loved you so much that he wanted to take your rebellion and flip it. He offers you salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. And you go, well, what do I got to do to earn that? You, you do nothing. It's already been earned for you. You see, here's the beauty of it. Give to Jesus all your good works and all your sin because they don't, they're not, they're not going to get you in. They're not going to make you right with God. And what he does, he gives you all his perfect righteousness and goodness as an exchange. You give up all your junk and all the things that you hold on to. He gives you all the stuff that you need and access to God and heaven and eternity are there. That's how much God loves us and wants that relationship. And maybe he's calling you to have that relationship today. It's time for you to make that exchange. 
that's you right now and you need to make that exchange, you need to receive everything God has for you so you can have a relationship with him and be right, all you have to do is accept it. And the way that we do that around here is just by letting me know and then we pray together. Just let me know by putting your hand up. You're saying, that's me. I need to accept that. Just put it up high enough that I can see it real quick and I want to walk you guys through a prayer. That's you right now, then just want you to ponder this thought. First, start with confession to God. Talk to him. Say, this kind of what I've done. And when you're kind of done with that, you're going to imagine the next move, which is called to repent. You turn away from it, and you turn to God. And you ask him to take all that mess and put it on Jesus. And then thank him for giving you all of his good. Now ask him to come into your life and to lead you through it. All the evils that are going to come, to lead you through those all the way into eternity and to heaven. And God, I ask that you would bless those who are making this decision to make that exchange, to give up all their good and evil and to receive everything that you've given to them, all that beautiful righteousness. Pray that you bless them, comfort them, solidify this relationship. For the rest of us, God, may we trust you greatly knowing that in, you have flipped the greatest evil to good and we can trust you in all the lesser ones. So help us to be people confident and kind in our delivery of this beautiful thing called the gospel at Christmas. We ask that you'd use us all in Jesus' name. Amen.